You're listening to Edupalooza Talks, a special podcast series from Break Free Education. We're proud to share this podcast series as a component of our Break Free Edupalooza, an online professional development conference for educators in juvenile justice facilities around the country. In this podcast, we're joined by Henderson Lewis, who currently serves as the superintendent of schools for the city of New Orleans. Superintendent Lewis is here to talk about his experience working in New Orleans for these last six plus years. I loved what he had to say about how he sees his work fitting into the larger, ongoing struggle to ensure that all students, particularly African-American kids growing up in the South, get the education they deserve. Superintendent Lewis, thank you so much for joining us today as a part of our interview series for Edge of Palooza. Before we get started, I want to be really honest with you and our listeners. I have immense respect for you and the work you've done in New Orleans and beyond. Having the chance to work with you and now the chance to talk with you in this setting is a great honor. For real. I mean that. Thank you. So with that, let's get started. We like to begin these podcasts by getting to know you a little, starting from the beginning. How did you wind up having a career in education? Can you share a bit of your journey from college to up when you were asked to come on as a superintendent in New Orleans? Yes. And and thank you, uh, David, for having me. It's truly an honor and, and love to discuss the conversation we're going to have here on today. I will say this question here is resonating with me in a great way because I just reached a major milestone in my professional career. This is my 25th year as an educator. I just finished seven years of being a superintendent here in New Orleans, but I have to be honest with you. I always knew from the time I was in elementary school all the way through high school that I wanted to become a teacher. My aunt, one of my favorite aunts, was an elementary teacher and it really inspired me to go into the field of education and went on to Southern University of New Orleans, receive a bachelor's in mathematics, teach high school, and then Immediately after graduating, I became a high school math teacher in my hometown of St. Bernard Parish, where I served for about seven years before I was promoted to the district office. And while those seven years were happening, I continued to further my education and receive my master's and PhD while I still was in the classroom teaching. And after being at the central office for a very short period of time, Hurricane Katrina happened. Our school system was devastated and... I went back to rebuild the school system in St. Bernard and went back to teaching once again and serve in that capacity until May of 2006. And then I decided I wanted to run for public office in my hometown. And so I resigned from my job, applied for jobs in New Orleans and was able to move to the Algiers Charter School Association, where I became an assistant principal for one year. And then the next four years, I served as the founding principal of a high school and my last year there. I was the director of academics, all while being a board member. And then I decided, you know what? I want to apply to be a superintendent. And so I applied for a job north of Baton Rouge with a great little town like East Feliciana Parish, served as their superintendent for three years. And David, I will say those three years were great because it was a community that had very, very little hope for public education. And in three years, I was able to restore hope. And then the last seven years, it's been my honor to serve as the superintendent of schools here in New Orleans and was able to work with local government officials and other stakeholders to actually get all of our schools back under the local control of the school board because when I took over 
the school district, the majority of the schools were under state control because of a state takeover. And so it has been a wonderful journey of 25 years, but I have to be honest, it's something that I always knew that was not only going to be a job for me, but it's really my responsibility. Wow, that's incredible. Great, it's worked out and certainly great for the young people in New Orleans and the surrounding areas that you've been able to stay local and stay grounded and and really do things on their behalf. So congratulations on 25 years. And again, congrats and thanks for staying staying local and, and working your magic in such a difficult place to make schools work. Hey, I want to ask you a sort of a logistical question here, mm-hmm. but I actually think this might reveal quite a bit about your values and beliefs. And you only have to share with us what you're comfortable with. But mm-hmm. is it okay if I give this a shot? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you know, what our listeners may not know is that the Travis Hill School has campuses in both the juvenile detention center and the adult jail in New Orleans. And for a host of reasons, the schools tend to have three or four graduations a year and each graduation only has two or three students. That's because kids are accumulating credits and get ready to graduate and oftentimes are about to get, unfortunately, sent to the Department of Corrections. So you try to have a graduation and celebrate. And Mm -hmm. it's my belief that you've attended all or just about all of these graduations over the Mm -hmm. last six years, either in person or remote when we had to do them remotely. And at all these graduations, you've spoken directly to the graduates and their families. I know you have a lot on your plate and you have a real big, a big school district with lots of challenges, but can you just explain to me why you attend and speak at each of these little graduations? Yes, David, I I just have to be honest with you around when I first started over seven years ago and went to the juvenile detention center and then also in uh, in the prison and i saw the programming that we had in place and i i I get it yeah many of these young people are being accused of some awful 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 offenses but what we were doing as a school system where individuals who in my opinion may not have been the best teacher and instead of going through some other personnel matters or what have you, you had individuals who were sent there. So I felt like it was a punishment for some people may have been working there as well. And as a school system, if we believe that we have to educate and we are there to educate every single student, it was why not these children here? And why not these young men? Because for the most part, that's what they were. And they were black. Why are we doing this to these black men? And for me, it was something that I knew we had to solve for because if I stand before my community and say, we need to do this for all of our children, I meant just that. And I'm so glad if I just fast forward to these graduations, just those graduations mean a lot to me. For one, it shows these, again, for the most, in most cases, these young men, and most of them are African-American young men, it shows that not only are they able to complete their high school diploma, because when I started, all they were doing was tutoring. And now, just like we have a program in all of our high schools, we have the same program in the Travis Hill School, and they receive the same diploma. And that says to that family that have gone through a lot, that, you know what, even though my child is incarcerated, he has accomplished something. Because sometimes the world has written those young men off. 
And then they can't do anything. And so, yes, I take it very, very personal. Um, it's one of my favorites of ceremony. I love the fact that it happens often because of the reminder of the work and what we have to do to save our young African-American males. And so I'm just very thankful of all the partners, the work that we've done with you all to really find this solution for our young people. Well, thank you for attending those and thank you for always knowing the students' names and speaking directly to them and their family. It's incredibly powerful. And as I think you know, Superintendent, I work in juvenile detention centers all across the country. Yes. And it is it is incredibly rare for the superintendents of schools to come to these graduations and speak directly to the students and their families and candidly the staff who's working hard. So I want to thank you and let you know just how much it means to to all of us involved. Thank you so much. And I hope you and I can work together to make that happen in more places around the country. I'm looking forward to it. And I will also say my team, they embrace this work as well. Absolutely. Let's move up the system a little bit here. So I want to just, again, sort of transition. You know, you've been through a lot there in your time. You you talked about uh, Katrina long ago when you were a teacher, but just the last few years, we had Hurricane Ida. We've had, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of waves of COVID. We had these crazy tornadoes come through. I'm in New Orleans a lot, but I don't live there. But it it sometimes seems like it just never ends. There's just a crisis, then there's a little bit of calm, and then the waves hit again. So, so professionally, in your capacity, help us all know, how do you manage through such challenges, and how do you lead people through such difficult times? Having a very unique system here in New Orleans, which is a decentralized school district, I'm very thankful for our charter schools that are led by our school leaders. And we're just a community of schools and we're able to meet on a regular basis. I'm the superintendent and and really be able to be that convener and bring people together. And it has been a a challenging time, even as you mentioned recently, Hurricane Ida, our two-year journey now, but even talking about COVID-19. I remember, and I just used COVID-19 just very, very quickly, in February 2020, I was like, oh my God, like this thing is coming. Like we're gonna have to, not we, Henderson, you're gonna have to lead on this. And so really had to pull my team together internally to bring the school leaders together to say, these are the things we need to happen at our individual school. So if this thing comes and happens, we're well prepared. And really, that's really how we get through every, crisis in our district, being able to work directly with our school leaders who are able to work with their people at at their individual sites and get the work done. And more importantly, make sure that our students and our educators are taken care of, no matter if you're talking about a hurricane or COVID-19 or any other disaster that we have to deal with. So it has been a journey. It hasn't been a lot of heavy lifting, but I have to be honest, it's about the people and support of the district and our school board members and all of us working hand in hand together to make sure that our kids and our educators are the top priority in their safety. Thank you for that. And those are, again, pretty critical priorities. Kids and staff got to keep kids safe, got to keep them educated and got to encourage and help staff feel good about going into school every day. So thank you for doing that. I want to follow up that this line of questioning a little bit, you know, structurally, the role of the superintendent and the school board is really different in New Orleans than in really all other cities because the schools are all 
managed by these board of directors of they're all public charter schools. And so they're all nonprofit organizations. Everyone has its own board of directors. Everyone has its own principal or AD. So how do you see your role and what can you and your team do beyond approving and closing down schools, which, you know, I say with quotes, because that's often what the critics say is all that you guys can really do is you can open schools and you can close them. That That's not my experience, but I'm interested in and you sharing with our audience a little bit about how you see your role and the role of the school board there in this really unique setup. Yes, yes very good question. And even as I just shared with the disasters, you know, the tornadoes, the hurricane, COVID-19, those are things that we also lead at the district office. But those are disasters, right? Like I use mental health, for example. It may be our schools are struggling with teacher pipelines. So, so at the district level, being able to come together to understand what the needs are of our schools. And, and many times we are serve as a convener, right? In addition to being the authorizing regulator of a school, and that's a major function because even though our schools have their autonomy, the school board and then my administration, it's our job to make sure that those who we entrust to oversee those schools every single day, that not only are they compliant, but the needs of the families are being met. And so many times there are needs that actually bubble up to the system level. And, and as a district, we've been able to like address some of those things and working in conjunction with our school leaders. And so it's truly a partnership. And then one thing that we've done, just use as an example, we have a wide range of needs of our students. And so as superintendent of school, letting the effort to actually develop a district level funding formula that the the most vulnerable student is able to actually get more funding because we know those educators at that school is going to cost more to educate that child. Or if you were incarcerated, to be able to advocate to add that child funding formula because we know the challenges that that young person is also being faced with, but you have to turn that into dollars to support the school to provide those additional services. So again, it's a different type of school district, but at the end of the day, this is my second superintendency. And I will say one thing that's constant in both of those, and one is a decentralized system here, and one would be considered a traditional superintendent, is really being that community leader that oversees the school and for the greater good and making sure that there is a large singular vision and goal that everybody is working towards, even if they are at their individual schools. And so for me, that's my job today. And that was my job as a uh, superintendent of traditional district, because at the end of the day, it's our kids who pass through our doors every single day. We have to meet the needs of the students and families so that our kids can actually live the life that not only their family de- desire, but what our young people envision and dream about every single day. I don't want to get stuck in the weeds, but I want to follow up on this on one thing that you mentioned. Like these per pupil funding formulas, in some cases, they just don't have enough inputs. And in fact, kids who are more at risk or come from poor families or who face other challenges really don't get more funding than kind of the average kid or a kid who might need more because it's political. It's only a set amount of money. Maybe we could talk about this just for a minute. Talk a little bit about how over the course of your tenure there in New Orleans, both politically and otherwise, how have you guys managed to move the per pupil funding formula in ways that adds more risk factors and adds more weights to young people who really need it. Because again, this doesn't just always happen. In the very beginning, it was very, very challenging. 
even still ended up in court initially and not in court for a bad reason, because at the end of the day, fundamentally, all of my schools, all of my leaders, we want the best for children. But as you mentioned, David, there's just limited resources. But we have to recognize, even in the midst of limited resources, we have to look at, in my mind, equity. And when it comes down to funding, when you have a student that has exceptionality, for example, and you know that the school made for this one particular kid, it may cost $100,000 because of all the different services that this child will need. If we just give every school an average per pupil, yeah, you can, you can make it work, but we have to be more intentional about that, right? And I'm just glad that as a community of schools, we continue to come together and being able to meet with school leaders, meet with our board members, meet with other stakeholders to, to look at. Here's what we're seeing as a challenge, right? And if this is a challenge that we collectively see, then we also have to allocate money and dollars there to be able to address it. So I'm just very, very thankful as I think about where we started with the funding formula and where we are. We've made a lot of progress. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. However, with the last formula that I've implemented, I also, because of my transition, made clear that annually we need to look at the data and look at what the data is saying. So every two years when we look to update it in the system, that you can look at the annual data to see if there's another category or if you need to reduce a category. And so it needs to be very, very nimble and fluid so that we continue to meet the needs of our students and our families. Absolutely. Thank you for explaining that to people. I don't I don't think everybody really understands that, but that was that was really clear. So thank you. All right. I want to ask another question that might kind of bridge the personal and the structural. You're African-American. You're a male. You're running a school district in a city and a state that candidly has a long, difficult history with African-American males from slavery to segregated schools to low graduation rates and educational attainment to the highest incarceration rates in the country. And, and yes, things definitely are getting better, but it has been and, and still is a struggle. So how do you see your work in the context of this history and this arc? Excellent question. It's something I live every single day, even as I can reflect on the killing of George Floyd. And when that happened and what I had to sit down and talk to my children about, and they see me as a superintendent, they see I have a PhD and the list goes on and on. What I share with them at the end of the day, I mean, just a black man. I just needed my kids to understand that. And if, if I have gone through all of those things in life and I'm able to personally see the challenges that I'm faced with every single day and, and sometimes being treated less less than an individual. It makes me think about the students that we serve and, and those who feel like they don't have a voice. And as a superintendent, I know that I am that voice for so many students and so many families. And that has really guided, guided my work. And I'm thankful as a Black man, even our young people know me as the superintendent. And I've been here now seven plus years. Now I'm the longest African-American serving African-American superintendent in 181 years of the district. And so those things there is what our kids need to be able to see, and especially our young black men and being able to have conversations with them. Because at the end of the day, so many people are counting them out. And I can just tell you, even from my time as a teacher, there was only about 50 black kids at the school I was teaching. But even if they were not in my class, they found their way to me. 
And, and, that, and that says a lot because we have to be able to identify with people who look like us and see them in those various roles. And so it's my desire that we continue to find out how we go to the pipeline of additional African-Americans and especially Black Af- African-American male teachers. They're, we need more, right? Yeah. Because we know our Black boys and our brown boys are struggling. And so it just has been a passion of mine to make sure that those things that for the most part, a kid that even though I lived in poverty, poverty got better for my family, you know, throughout the years or what have you, that I was able to make it. Everybody doesn't have that story, but everybody needs to have an advocate and especially people in the right seats to be able to speak and do for them on their behalf when they can't do for themselves. All right. Well, thank you for being such an advocate. Absolutely. We just have a couple more questions here. I won't, won't keep you too much longer. And I know we've talked about this before, but not on this podcast, I want to bring it up. You know, sadly, every major city in America has a juvenile detention center. Most of them are filled with kids of color. And inside of each one of them is a school, or they're supposed to be a school at least. And I've been in many of them, probably more than anybody else. And most of those schools are throwaway schools. In many cases, the superintendent of the school district doesn't even know that they're responsible for educating young people held in their detention centers in their jurisdiction. I doubt that it's on the set of interview questions in most places when they're looking to hire a school superintendent, like, hey, what do you think you're going to do to improve the school in the detention center? So, you know, what do you say to your fellow superintendents about this? You care about these schools and the students who are locked up in New Orleans. Why should they as well? First of all, educators, we we think about every single student that we have in our school district. And because of how some districts, and even just reflecting on the district here in New Orleans, and when I had the opportunity to go and visit, many times I would assume that many superintendents don't even have the chance to go and visit their program inside the prison to see if it's going to make them proud or not. And I will tell you, that's what did it for me, because if I would have just bypassed and not visit all the schools when I first started, I probably wouldn't have known how bad it was. And Mm -hmm. as an educator, and I'm saying like in in New Orleans, we say every child, every school, every day. Well, when we say every child, that also includes the child that's incarcerated. And it also includes about them every single day, because if it's every school, like in New Orleans, the Travis Hill School is a school. We have a responsibility and an obligation to that school and those students and those families, just like everyone else. So to my colleagues who haven't really had the opportunity to spend much time at their programs and their schools inside this secure care facility, that's step one. And be able to step away after you go and visit and, and see if it's something that you're proud of. And again, We know resources are limited, but at the end of the day, we need to spread those resources to every single school, every single program, every single child to make sure that we're doing right by children. Because regardless, every single student in our school system, they will be the productive members of our society post-graduation, post-turning 18 years of age, however you want to look at it. And and I think as educators, we don't want to be the individual that did not create the opportunity for that person to live a productive life. And so that's my advice to my colleagues, but to be able to like just step back, look at their programs and see what things that 
um, can be approved upon because even at the Travis Hill School and every other school we have, there are things that we can approve upon. But if it's not at a minimum standard to say like, yeah, this is good and we have to keep working, then I just encourage my colleagues to go ahead and do something about it, just like they're doing it at any other school. Because the difference today is at the other schools, parents would show up and you would hear it loud and clear and then you would almost be forced to say, okay, we have to do something about this. Well, these here are parents who are dealing with very hard situations because their babies are many times now incarcerated or in a detention center. And so they're distracted because they're thinking about other things. And so we have to be there for them. And so, again, this is going to be part of what I talk about and do post my time as superintendent of schools to make sure that our school districts have the support that they need to be able to create something like we created in the city of New Orleans because it matters. And I can truly say every time I attend a graduation, I know we're making a difference. I'm so glad you you talked about that. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the role of parents. We talk about this a lot. Once kids get locked up, many parents just feel like their hands are tied. Their kids are locked up either locally in a detention yeah. center or far away. And everything about the system says to the parents, you're not welcome here. Things aren't transparent. Your child's locked up. And you just don't have this parent advocacy and somebody has to advocate just like parents of other kids do. I say this all the time. I have, as you know, 16 year old twins. And if the school just every other day said there's not going to be math class because we don't have a math teacher or said school's going to start half day late because we our dean of students isn't here. It's a public school, but. We would go ballistic. Yes, yes, um, and we all know it. But in but in these settings around the country, students don't get a chance to go to school for all sorts of reasons, and there's no one there to advocate for them, except for people like you. So thanks for doing that. It's been yes. really great to talk to you today, Dr. Lewis. Thanks for joining me. But more so, again, sincerely, I want to thank you for all you've done for the young people held in detention in New Orleans for making school possible for them, for giving them and their parents hope and really having them have some aspiration, knowing that they have someone in your capacity who cares about them just like you care about all the other students in your school district. So they're not here today, but I'm saying thank you from each and every one of them. Thank you. On a lighter note, we are asking our guests if they either have a podcast or a newsletter or a book you really either enjoyed or that you like listening to. It can be work-related, personal, anything else. If you have something like that you'd like to share, let's get it out there. So, um, which is really in line with our conversation today, I've been doing a lot of reading. Um, actually, right when the pandemic happened, I enrolled in the Cornell University Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion program and received a certification in that area. So I've been reading a lot of books around equity and social justice. And there is a book that is coming out, I believe, in the month of June. It's, it's called The Inclusive Leader, Taking the Intentional Actions for Justice and Equity. I believe that's what it is. Tika Tyner, I think is her name, for uh, the author of the book. And so looking forward to that book coming out this summer to really continue to learn as much as I can about diversity, equity, inclusion, as well as uh, social justice, because we are at a different place in our country right now. And as, as leaders and, and, and myself in particular, 
black men of color. I want to be able to equip myself with all the necessary information that I need to be able to make sure that every single student that are in school systems where I'll be working and advocating for are really given the chance to make it. And there are a lot of adult issues that we all know that need to be addressed because we all know kids are going to be kids and they're ready. And it's our influence that many times set them back. And so really want to be able to like dive deeper into that to be able to help this next generation because we have, they're counting on us and we're going to be counting on them. And so this is a circle of life and that's my life mission, even as now I'm retired from my K-12 journey and taking on a different journey, but looking forward to making sure that I'm there for our young people. And lastly, if you, do you have any, you know, last bits of advice or words of advice you'd like to share as we wrap up? One thing that I often tell my leadership team, those who work in the central office, our school leaders who I also talk to and actually uh, we'll be talking to them shortly, is really you have to make sure we, we give, 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 right? And you really have to be able to look at your mind, your body, and your soul because those things have to be taken care of. Many times you need to replenish yourself because at the end of the day, I remind people, when you're trying to pour into others, when your cup is empty, there's nothing that you can give. Okay, how awesome you are. And so we have to be very intentional about self-care. I will tell you, David, in the last two years, I probably have taken that to heart more than I have in the 47 years I've been on this earth of of the importance of self-care. And so to the listening audience, I will just remind you, that self-care is so important. And if you are leading others, that you need to make sure that you lead and understand the importance of self-care. And when people need to have a break, they need to have a break. And even thinking about COVID, I remember talking to my staff in the very beginning and it was a very uncertain time. And yes, they all were working remotely, but I remember one time saying like, listen, if you're working and this day, because of what you're dealing with, dealing with your family, trying to do your work and everything else in between, if you just need to sit and do nothing for 30 minutes and then it's not your life period, it's okay, yeah. right? And we have to, as leaders, be able to tell people that it's okay because at the end of the day, people cannot point to others if their cup is empty. And so I just encourage everyone to take care of themselves, especially in times like these. Well, that's some great advice to close on. So thank you very much and wonderful advice. And again, in closing, I just want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Lewis. I want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us today for this short podcast as a part of our Edupalooza conference. We're grateful for all the educators out there doing incredible work of making school happen inside of juvenile facilities, especially during these challenging times. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Edupalooza Talks, a break-free education podcast. Music for this podcast was written and produced by students at the J.C. Montgomery School, located inside Kings County Juvenile Detention Center in Central California, as a part of Unsung, break-free education's annual songwriting initiative for students held in confinement. Edupalooza Talks podcast is produced by our friend and colleague, Christine Anjoko. 
tryna show the fam, I got them, don't know how to live I'm really tryna do my best, I guess it ain't enough I don't know who to trust, more heart been broken up I'm tryna keep a smile up, but I've been feeling numb Better tell me, gotta watch who I be riding with I didn't listen, now I'm back up in the fire pit They put me in this cage, and they expect to change But it only made me worse, and y'all the ones to blame I gotta take a second, I gotta catch a man Cause I be sitting 192 and it isn't fair Would you come and switch positions, no you wouldn't dare Life could change at any moment and I'm well aware All these emotions building up and you just can't compare They got me like an institution in the devil's lair I'm just glad I got my brother with me every tear Feeling my feeling my feeling